Uh, this morning, um, I need to talk to you about the most holy place, and I suppose that the obvious thing to talk about would be the Ark of the Covenant. We could learn some lessons from the fact that the law of God is the foundation of his character. We could talk about the pot of manna. We could talk about Aaron's rod. We could talk especially in this group about the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the many lessons that are especially applicable to us from that day. We've talked a lot about many of those things this weekend already, haven't we? The blotting out of sins, uh, the Day of Atonement, how we are living in that day, and this is a, a special, serious time for us. Excuse me. But um, this morning, I wanted to talk about something a little bit different, something that it's likely many of you have never heard a sermon or a Bible study about. Nevertheless, this object in the sanctuary that I would like to talk about this morning, I feel is extremely important. This object, unlike many other parts of the sanctuary, the symbolism is explicitly interpreted in the New Testament. I mean, it's just no arguing. The New Testament says this is what it is. Uh, this object also ties together, in my mind, the services of the daily with the services of the Day of Atonement in powerful ways, I believe. This object is so important that in the Old Testament times, specifically in the book of Daniel, an understanding of the symbolism of this object in the sanctuary divided between true and false prophets. And in the New Testament, an understanding of the symbolism inherent in this object, the use expanded. It not only separated between true and false prophets, but between true teachers and false teachers, the spirit behind teachers, true pastors, false pastors, and a misunderstanding of the symbolism of this object is even, in the New Testament, stated to be a sign of the Antichrist. I think it's fairly important. The object I'd like to talk with you about covered the ark when it was being transported from place to place. This morning I'd like to talk with you about the veil. Now for those of you who take notes, our devotional this morning has a very simple outline. We're first of all going to look at three literal uses of the veil. Then we're going to look at that New Testament passage which tells us what it represents. And then we're going to again look at those three uses of the veil with the understanding of what the veil represents. Okay? Before we do that, of course, uh, let's, um, let's all kneel for prayer. Dear God, I ask that the Holy Spirit will be present with us here this morning as we consider your sanctuary again. You set up these symbols and in some cases you tell us what they represent and I ask that uh, through our time together we will understand Jesus better. In your name, amen. <clears throat> now there are undoubtedly more than three functions to the veil in the heavenly sanctuary but we're only going to look at these three for sake of time. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus. 
Exodus chapter 40 and verse 3. If you look at the surrounding verses, you find that this passage is describing when the tabernacle was put together. And during the time that the tabernacle was being put together in Exodus 40 verse 3, what do you find the veil doing? In Exodus 40, verse 3. Not a rhetorical question. Feel free to respond. Say again? Yeah, it was used to cover the Ark of the Covenant. And I believe it's probably fairly obvious to all of us why that was. The Ark was covered to provide separation between the glory of God and the priests who were ministering there to set up all the various things in the tabernacle. If you turn back a few pages to Exodus 26 and verse 33, talking about how the tabernacle was finally going to be arranged, we find that the veil was to be hung up under the tax that you may bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall do what? It shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy place. The veil was there for division, for separation. This is the first use of the veil. The veil was something that separated. I already mentioned it was used to cover the Ark of the Covenant when it was in transport. You find that in Numbers 4 and verse 5. So the veil separated between the holy place and the most holy place, which begs the obvious question, why would God want separation? And I believe the answer to that is likewise fairly simple. You all probably know the passage from memory in Exodus 25, verse 8. Why was it God set up the entire tabernacle system? Exactly. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanted to be with his people, and yet sin had separated between you and your God. And all the veils of the tabernacle, the entire tabernacle, but especially the veil between the holy place and the most holy place was for separation, but that separation was for the purpose of nearness. God wanted to be extremely close to his people. He wanted to be near them, but he needed something to separate a little space between he and his people. Now, in the, in the sanctuary, you recall, the veil didn't reach all the way to the ceiling. It hung down between the nails on the pillars that were supporting it. And as the priest was ministering in the holy place, he could catch glimpses of the glory of God coming over from the most holy place. This wasn't true in the uh, tabernacle uh, in Jesus' day, but of course the Shekinah glory wasn't there. There was no Ark of the Covenant. But in the veil of the sanctuary, you could have caught small glimpses through the warp and, whoop, warp and woof of the fabric lighting up the intricate embroidery, just small points of the glory of God shining through the veil, as well as the glory coming over the top. So to summarize, the purpose, the first purpose of the veil was for separation but nearness. Separation but nearness. Second, the veil contained a record of sins. Now this may be a little bit more obscure. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 6. <clears throat> Excuse me. Leviticus chapter 4 
and verse 6, describing the way many of the sacrifices were dealt with. The priest, who has already helped the sinner through the sacrificial process in the courtyard, now is bringing the blood into the holy place. And you remember that the blood was going to be placed on the altar. It's there in the passage as well, on the horns of the golden altar. But also, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. You understand the pattern. The blood of the sin offerings, the sacrifices, was transferred. The sinner was forgiven. And the sin, the record of sin, was transferred from the sinner to the sanctuary itself. The priest would place a bloody fingerprint on the, horn of the, on the horns of the altar in the most holy place. But also, he would sprinkle the blood before the veil. The Hebrew word is panim. And it can also be translated on. It's probably not true that the focus was on the veil. What, what was the focus on? Where was the priest to sprinkle the blood, according to this passage? What comes before the veil? It says before the, before the Lord. The focus was probably uh, on sprinkling the blood by faith toward the Shekinah glory that was seen by faith behind the veil. The priest was sprinkling the blood before the Lord. But also before the veil. Regardless of how you understand the passage, we know that the blood would have gotten on the veil to serve as an accessory record of sins. Historical sources tell us that uh, the Jews understood they were to sprinkle the blood on the veil. I highly recommend uh, the book With Jesus in His Sanctuary by Leslie Harding. And uh, he also quotes historical sources, Jewish scholars that saw the veil of the sanctuary that Titus captured in AD 70 and carried off to Rome. And that veil was four inches thick, incredibly intricate embroidery, and it was smeared with the blood of many sacrifices. And I don't know how he could tell, but the Jewish historian tells us it was from both the daily and the yearly sacrifices that he saw the record of sins that had been transferred to the sanctuary through all the sacrifices. So, the second purpose of the veil, it had a record of sins. It had a record of all the sins that had been transferred to the sanctuary by sprinkling. Third, the veil was the only way to God. I don't have any specific passage for this, but I encourage you to, if you have a computer with a Bible on it, do a search for the word veil and notice the number of times the veil serves a, a geometric purpose. The veil is a point of reference. Notice the number of times you find phrases such as within the veil, without the veil, before the veil, through the veil. All of these things indicate the veil was a point of reference. You know, of course, that on three sides, the most holy place was a solid wall. If you wanted to go into the very presence of God, your only option was to go through the veil. So three purposes of the veil. What are they? Number one, separation for the purpose of nearness. Number two, a record of sins. And number three, the only way to God. Turn with me in your Bibles now to Hebrews 10, verse 20. We're studying the book of Hebrews this weekend.
Hebrews 10, verse 20, Paul unequivocally tells us what the veil represents. And that's very helpful if you want to understand the sanctuary. Hebrews 10, verse 20, the purpose of the veil, or the symbolism, is not left to our imagination. The inspired commentary reads, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. So what does the veil represent according to the Bible? It represents Jesus' flesh. Isn't that what it says here? Let's now consider the three things that we just discussed. First, how does Christ's human flesh allow for separation but nearness to God? This should be extremely obvious. Turn with me in your Bibles to John 1.14. You all know the passage. Speaking of Jesus as the Word, we heard this weekend about how Jesus so identified himself with the Bible that he called himself the Word. The Word was what? Made flesh. And what would, you all probably are familiar with this as well, what would be a better translation of the word dwelt? Tabernacle among us. It doesn't matter whether they're Adventists, non-Adventists, nearly all Bible commentators when they read this passage see sanctuary language here. The word tabernacled among us. The very Shekinah glory took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Separation for the purpose of nearness. Jesus veiled for a time his divinity within a human body so that he could be near to us. Now the verse doesn't leave us wondering as to what the purpose was. What was the purpose according to this verse? That we be, may be held his glory. glory. Yeah, so God, for the purpose of demonstrating his glory to each one of us, wrapped the Shekinah glory in human flesh so that he could draw near to us. This is from Signs of the Times, 1896. In contemplating the incarnation of Christ in humanity, we stand baffled before an unfathomable mystery that the human mind cannot comprehend. The more we reflect upon it, the more amazing does it appear. How wide is the contrast between the divinity of Christ and the helpless infant in Bethlehem's manger? Far higher than any of the angels, equal with the Father in dignity and glory, and yet wearing the garb of humanity. Divinity and humanity were mysteriously combined, and man and God became one. It is in this union that we find the hope of our fallen race. Now, Christ's flesh brought him near to us in ways that he could not otherwise have done. The obvious example is in Hebrews chapter 4. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. The Bible tells us one of the reasons Christ became a man. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What are infirmities? Well, of course they include things such as sickness, cold, hunger, but the Bible doesn't leave you wondering if it's limited to those things. The Bible tells us in the next phrase what infirmities Jesus includes in the things that he experienced while here on earth. He was tempted in all points 
like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, because he came to this earth as a man, allowed himself to be tempted the same way you and I are. The way Christ's flesh carries a record of sins is likewise clear in general, but I think we need to um, give it a little bit greater consideration. In general, you all know that the only reminder of sins through all the rest of eternity after the millennium and the judgment and everything's all done, what is the only reminder of sins? It is the marks in Jesus' flesh. That is the only record of sins that will remain after all the other records have been blotted out. But let's be more specific and apply this to us individually. First, let me ask you some questions. Do you understand that events in heaven, literal things that happen in heaven, have profound consequences here on earth? Do you understand that? We uh, are studying the, uh, the seals and the trumpets currently at our Sabbath school. And it's amazing just to consider the general concept that something happens in heaven. A seal is broken on a mysterious book, or a trumpet sounds. And what happens? All sorts of things happen down here on earth. There's a profound connection that we don't consider enough between events that happen in heaven and events that happen here on earth. But do you understand that the converse is also true? That is, things that happen here on earth have profound consequences for what is happening right now in the heavenly sanctuary in heaven. The example from Revelation that seemed obvious and was the one I happened to be reading at the time, was in Revelation 14, where the angels tell Jesus when it's time to reap. You know, there's, there's angels in heaven, and they're just looking around, and then one of them says, thrust in your sickle and reap, because the time has arrived for you to reap, because, why? The harvest is ripe. And I believe that you all understand the symbolism of that. The harvest of the wicked, the harvest of the righteous, both have come to completion. The time has arrived for Jesus to reap. The angels from heaven watching the earth notice that events on earth have, have brought Christ's ministry to a close, and it is now time for him to reap. Events on earth have profound consequences in the heavenly sanctuary as well. Now, we all understand, we've discussed it this entire weekend, and I briefly reviewed it previously, how sins were forgiven in the, uh, the courtyard, and then the blood carrying the record of sins was transferred to the earthly sanctuary in type. And we understand that the same thing is happening today. Sins here on earth are forgiven by Jesus and through his high priestly ministry transferred to the very sanctuary in heaven. Thus the need for the cleansing of the sanctuary. There is something in heaven that needs cleansed, and it is the record of your sins and mine. Based on the symbolism of the veil, I suggest to you that even today, sins committed here on earth have drastic consequences on Jesus himself ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. I believe that sins that you and I commit affect Jesus in a very personal way. In fact, three ways. And I will read them to you from fifth volume of the Testimonies. Ellen White was discussing the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the lost piece of silver. And on page 604, she continued and states that every soul that is especially imperiled by falling into temptation 
causes pain to the heart of Christ and calls forth his tenderest sympathies and most earnest labor. Three things that happen to Jesus when someone here on earth falls into temptation. I don't know if you're like that. I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not like Jesus in this regard. That when someone causes pain to my heart, that doesn't automatically bring forth tender sympathies from within me. But that's the way Jesus is. Uh, in one of his seminars, Eugene Pruitt said that, I don't mean to suggest there is an ideal marriage. And I corrected him afterwards. I said, I have an ideal marriage, brother. Um, I love my wife. And there are times when we have disagreements. And because we love each other so much, there's a potential that we can cause pain to the other person's heart. And there, I, I'm not going to say, I'm not even going to put a percentage on it, but some of the time when we have a disagreement and she causes pain to my heart, it does call forth tender sympathies, you know, for her and the fact that she just doesn't understand or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, as I was thinking about it in preparation for this talk, I don't know that there has ever been another human being besides my wife that when they have hurt me, my immediate next response is tender sympathy for them. How can I work for their salvation? And yet, this is how Christ feels. These are his emotions. Three things that sin on earth causes in the heavenly sanctuary. Number one, pain in the heart of Christ. Number two, tender sympathy. And number three, he works harder. It calls forth his most earnest labor. Now, the Bible does not treat this as a light matter. Um, last night, we touched on this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6. We read the first part of the chapter. This is discussing Christians who have had a reasonable amount of understanding in the things of God. Christians who have had gifts of the Spirit. They have tasted of the uh, good world to come. These are, these are not baby Christians. These are people who understand uh, many things in the Christian walk. And in verse 6, it tells us that if one of these Christians takes those final steps in sin, or it tells us what happens when those final steps in sin, those final decisions leading this Christian away from Christ recreate the very pain of the crucifixion in the heart of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus does not crucify it again literally, but these gross sins here on earth, it is as if Jesus is being crucified again as he ministers for this person above. That is real pain in the heart of Christ. I want to spend a little bit of time on a side point. You know, I'm giving a whole devotional on, on uh, Christ's human nature. And some people get nervous about that. They think you're spending too much time on the human nature of Christ. So let me for a moment say that Christ's divine nature when he was here on earth gave him no advantage in his struggle against sin. In fact, I believe it was a disadvantage. Can you imagine the amount of self-control that was required to not tap in to infinite power easily at your disposal when you were being mocked? Now, of course, I've heard preachers say that, you know, Jesus was going to flash forth his glory and lay all his persecutors in the dust. That's what the spirit of prophecy says. But, you know, he didn't have to do that. He could just make them stop. 
You know, just make, make them, you know, forget this laying them in the dust business. Just, you know, that's too nice. I mean, that would be too mean. And Jesus isn't that way. But just make them stop. But he didn't. Because he knew that he needed to provide an example for you and I. He lived as we must live to give us an example of a surrendered life. More to the point of our sanctuary study, though, consider the fact that you and I are used to sin. Similar to the fact, uh, similar to the way we've been breathing smoke this entire weekend on this smoke-free campus, <laughs> we are breathing in an atmosphere of sin that surrounds this world. That's another assignment. Do a study on uh, the atmosphere of sin in the spirit of prophecy. It's very real. But Jesus wasn't used to breathing that. Through constant prayer, he breathed the atmosphere of heaven. He was not used to sin. There's a book uh, that has an entire chapter. The book is called The Gift. And I haven't decided whether I recommend it yet. But I entirely uh, recommend this chapter. It's devoted to exploring the various ways in which Christ's unique nature affected his interactions with others. The, author, the author's argument is that both joy and grief are proportional to how much you love someone or love something. And the spirit of prophecy concurs, stating that Jesus endured such heartache as no human language can portray. Our world is a vast scene of misery we dare not even let our thoughts dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible, yet God feels it all. Steps to Christ tells us that contact with sin was unspeakably painful to Jesus. Every sin, discord, and defiling lust in those surrounding him was torture to his spirit. And finally, the near death of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and his final death on the cross were caused by overwhelming mental anguish, not due only to separation between he and his father, but specifically were due to simply thinking about your sin and mine. Quoting again, the hosts of darkness are there to make sin appear as extensive, deep, and horrible as possible. The workings of the vigilant foe in presenting to Christ the vast proportions of transgression caused such poignant pain that he felt he could not remain in the presence of any human being. He could not bear that even his disciples should witness his agony as he contemplated the woe of the world. He was overwhelmed with horror and consternation at the fearful work sin had wrought. And it was this simple contemplation of sin that nearly caused the death of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and would have caused his death if the angel had not come to strengthen him. And from desire of ages regarding the death of Christ... And now the Lord of glory was dying, a ransom for the race. It was not the dread of death that weighed upon him. His suffering was from a sense of the malignity of sin, a knowledge that through familiarity with evil, man had become blinded to its enormity. Christ saw how deep is the hold of sin upon the human heart, how few would be willing to break from its power. He saw multitudes perishing within reach of abundant help. You know, Jesus' unique nature... His ability, I don't have the page number, brother. I'm sorry. I'll be happy to help you find it afterwards. Um, Jesus' unique nature, his ability to 
feel to its depths the terrible things that sin has done to you and I. Caused him to physically die in his flesh. His human nature was too weak to endure the waves of grief that his infinite love caused. Just as the veil of the tabernacle carried a record of sins, so Christ in his body still bears a record of sins in the sanctuary above. And that record is more painful than you and I can imagine. I guess my appeal in the middle of this devotional is that if there is some sin in your life that you are hanging on to, any sin that you have not fully surrendered to Jesus and asked him to rid you of, that you would do so in consideration of what sin does to Jesus, literally, today, please, reconsider. Reconsider how important that thing that you thought you couldn't do without really is to you. Finally, just as the only entrance to the presence of God in the literal sanctuary was through the veil, the only way to God today is through the veil. That is Jesus' flesh. Jesus, of course, said of himself that I am the way, the truth, the life. And how many people get to the Father except through him? None. There is only one way to the very presence of God, and that is through the veil. The obvious text uh, here that we should look at is Matthew 27, 50, and 51. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. This is discussing the moment of the crucifixion or the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. And the Bible tells us that just as Jesus died on the cross, just as his physical body expired, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. The comparisons are obvious. It might be interesting to you to know that the veil of the tabernacle was hung by nails. It was hung by four nails, in fact. Four holes, and now a rent down the middle, the moment Jesus died. Desire of Ages comments on this moment, stating all is terror and confusion. The priest is about to slay the victim, but the knife drops from his nerveless hand, and the lamb escapes. Type has met antitype in the death of God's son. The great sacrifice has been made. The way into the holiest is laid open. A new and living way is prepared for all. Now, of course, the earthly temple now had no significance. The way of God was opened through Christ's broken body. All of us can now come to God by faith in Jesus' sacrifice, and our eventual literal reunion with the Godhead will be through Jesus' body as well. Now, our key text for this talk, Hebrews 10, verse 20, calls the way new and living. Now, the new part we've talked about this weekend, and I think it's fairly obvious, uh, but what about living? The New Testament calls the ministration of the Old Testament a ministration of death uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, in contrast to the New Covenant. There are at least two ways in which the New Covenant is a living way in contrast with the Old Covenant, and we've briefly discussed both of them this weekend already. One is the sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, how many sacrifices were needed? Many. There was constant death 
going on in the literal sanctuary here on earth. By contrast, in the New Covenant, the sacrifice is alive. Jesus died but rose from the dead. And as I thought about this, I've come to a new understanding of Romans 12, verse 1. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And I always thought that, well, that means that you know, I don't have to lay down on an altar and die. I mean, I, I, I knew that you had to surrender to Christ and all that stuff. But if I am to be like Jesus, a living sacrifice, that doesn't mean I don't die. What does it mean? That I am resurrected with Christ. We'll, we'll look at that more in a moment. The second way is similar. First way, the sacrifice is alive. Second way is very similar. Hebrews 7, verse 23 and 24. Contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant again. In the Old Covenant, how many priests were there? According to this verse, many, exactly. Why? Because they kept dying. You know, there was Aaron, and then he died off, and then his son, and then he died off, and they kept having to find more priests because they kept dying off. Well, that's true. But whether you're a high priest or a lower priest, they all kept dying, is Paul's argument here. Um, you, you couldn't avoid it. But why is the New Covenant better? According to this passage, we've discussed a lot of other reasons. But Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood because he doesn't die. You know, that's, that's another way that the new and living way is living. Because Jesus is the sacrifice who is alive. He's also the priest who is alive. I'm drawing only one main lesson from all of this. Turn to Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. The basic lesson is follow Jesus. And we could spend a lot of time expanding that. But in this passage, there are two obvious ways in which we are to follow Jesus. First, we are buried with him. We die, and we are buried symbolically. Our old man dies the death of the cross. What's the second way? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also rise from the dead to walk in newness of life. And what does it mean to walk in newness of life according to this passage? The key words are, even so. We are to walk just as Jesus walked, you know. Romans 6, verse 4, summarizing the ways in which we are to follow Jesus. We are to die his death and then live his life. Now, the new way through the veil is a living way because the power of Jesus' resurrection is the same power that is available to you and I to help us walk. For sake of time, we're not going to go to these passages, but I encourage you to write them down. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, verse 5, and Philippians 3, verse 10. Again, that's Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, verse 5, and Philippians 3, verse 10. And I learned some new ones last night at our sermon which say the same thing. It's, all, it's a theme through the New Testament that the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, it is that same power which is offered to us to help us 
be raised from the dead spiritually and walk in newness of life. To summarize this section, we could look at Hebrews 10, verse 1 and 4. Hebrews 10, verse 1 and 4. Tell us why the old covenant doesn't work. Or they tells us that it didn't work. The blood of the bulls and goats didn't work. Verse 4, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. But Jesus' blood can. The new and living way established by Jesus can do what the old covenant couldn't do. The final lesson of the veil is that Jesus... Holy life in sinful flesh, perfect sacrifice, and the resurrection of that same human body combine to give us complete salvation. And Jesus has carried the same into the heavens and is now ministering for us in the heavenly sanctuary. The angel's comment to Joseph about the incarnation of Christ is certainly appropriate. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Friends, the symbolism of the veil teaches large les lessons that are worthy of our continued uh, contemplation. The mysteries of the Incarnation itself may be obscure, but the practical lesson is not. The practical reality is that Jesus is a merciful High Priest because He was made in all points like His brother. He was tempted in all points like as we are, and suffering being tempted, He is able to help us every time we are tempted. Hebrews chapter 2. Because he was tempted in all points like as we are, we can boldly come to the throne of grace and receive grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews also teaches, our second point, that there are literal marks of the crucifixion in Jesus' body, which are a record of sins. But beyond this, today, when we turn from Christ... This recreates the very pain of the crucifixion in him as he ministers for us above, Hebrews chapter 6. And third, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is the only way that we can approach to God. We are to come to God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. As we go forth from this place, I'd like us to sing <coughs> hymn number 377. So I looked at the words of this hymn. I'll tell you, I'm not particularly fond of the tune, but the words... Are, the reason I'm not fond of the tune is because this is one I had to learn in college to pass piano proficiency. But the words of this hymn are profound, and they recapitulate what it is so many of you said during our testimony time previously, and that is that we need to take what we have learned here and take it to the valley below. Hymn number 377. I invite you to stand. Go forth, go forth with Christ.
has led will lead and keep you in his way. Food is fast, his promise sure to Jesus, I ask that this will be the challenge to each one of us, that we will find your purposes, not our own, that we will find your way, not our own, that we will follow Jesus, we will die his death, and then through the very power of the resurrection, live his life. Help us to understand and continually consider the lessons that the veil of the sanctuary can teach us. Help us to consider what it is you are doing for us in heaven and how our actions here on earth can have extreme positive and negative effects on the sanctuary service now going forward in heaven. Dear God, help us through surrender and cooperation with you to bring the Day of Atonement services to a close. We want to follow Jesus the same way that Jesus followed you when he was here among us. Help us to have, help us to apply this understanding so that we can not only have intellectual knowledge of what it was Jesus accomplished and what it was Jesus' example means to us, but help us to have a living reality, a relationship with you, which is characterized by daily surrender. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.